today. It's lovely to see you all. Um, and I'm really looking forward to what I'm sure is going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit today about the shape of creative spaces. Um, and that ranges from the way we design our homes and our workspaces to the role of art in public spaces, and even what digital technology can do to open up access to culture. Um, but before we dive in, I'd love to introduce my brilliant panelists. So first up, I have Corrie Jackson, who's the senior art curator for Royal Bank of Canada, um, where she's responsible for building the company's art collection, advising on acquisitions and displays, and developing relevant partnerships. She's particularly interested in cross-generational dialogues and making sure that collections are as inclusive as possible, which at RBC has meant offering a platform for local Canadian artists with a particular focus on women and people from Indigenous backgrounds. Next up, I have um, Zainat Fidilioglu. I'm going to ask you to say that yourself because I'm not sure how my Turkish is. <laughs> Perfect, okay. Zeynep's an interior designer who founded the multidisciplinary architecture and design practice ZF Design back in 1995. She's since turned her hand to everything from restaurants and hotels to private homes in locations including New Delhi, Abu Dhabi, and London. But she's perhaps best known as the visionary behind Istanbul's Sakiran Mosque, which she designed in 2009. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be visiting the private dining room here at Masterpiece, you'll have the opportunity to see one of her design schemes for yourself. And last but not least, may I introduce Mohammed Afkami, whose impressive career involves roles as the founder and managing partner of Magenta Capital Services and the co-founder and vice chairman of London Strategic Land. But perhaps most pertinently for our conversation today, Mohammed is also a prominent and prolific corrector, collector of Iranian art, which he has exhibited internationally. And through his involvement with institutions such as the British Museum and the Guggenheim, he's championed the work of Iranian artists and has even published two books on the subject. Thank you. So, I'd like to start today's conversation by casting our minds back to the way we all felt at the height of those 2020 lockdowns, when we were stuck in our homes, starved of art and culture, unable to visit galleries and museums. And I think we all came out of the pandemic realizing just how much of an impact our surroundings can have on our well-being um, and why we have such a powerful need for cultural stimulation. So with that in mind, um, Cory, I'd love to come to you first, um, because so much of what you do at RBC is around thinking about the role of art in shaping the way people in a workplace think and talk and feel and behave. Um, would you tell us first a little bit about the process of your most recent project, which was selecting and hanging work at RBC's London headquarters in Bishopsgate, and some of the things you thought about in terms of the narratives and behaviours you wanted to shape with the pieces that you chose? Sure, I can give a little bit of a briefing. And for anyone coming into the fair, actually, as you enter in the RBC salon, there's a selection of works from that presentation. There's over 50 works in the offices themselves, but we have six here with us. And the collection is Canadian artists. And I think that historically, there's a lot of assumptions people make about what Canadian art is and isn't. So initially, the ask was, oh, we'll have Canadian landscape, because that's... Canada in some way. Uh, but the collection really isn't that. It's quite broad. And I think the goal for me going into the space wasn't just to have one overarching theme, but actually to make sure that the space is really responsive to the audience and how the space was going to be used. So the pr predominantly, we were focused on the conference floor, which is a lot of individual spaces. And I think art has that role of shaping the conversations and the tones that happen as people are interacting. So my goal was to bring in a really wide range of artists, but also 
a diversity of, of approaches and, and thematics and tones so that as people were going into the offices and meeting rooms, they can decide where they're going based on the tone they also want to have the conversation take. Is it you know, a serious conversation and the work needs to reflect that? Do we want to go in with something a little bit more joyful and playful? And uh, I think that was kind of the anchor was to make sure that as people were going into the space that that was an element of choice. Um, but yeah, as you said, during COVID, it was an interesting time because it was figuring that all out. And I think doing, I was doing all of the installations with a drone and video footage. <laughs> so um, understanding scale and space and, and making sure the pieces fit within that moment and then thinking about how the space would be interacted with was, was certainly interesting over the past two years. And yeah, now it's all up and on the walls and being experienced though, which is wonderful. All worth it, brilliant. Well, I'm gonna ask you a little bit later about a bit more about some of the pieces in particular, um, but um, Zaina, perhaps we can come to you next. Um, picking up on those ideas of, of sort of shaping culture and also responding to spaces. Um, I mean, you've really made an art of designing spaces that really respond to the needs and the culture of the local community, but maybe also challenge them to step out of their comfort zone now and again. Um, can you talk us through some of the decisions you had to make when you took on that incredible brief for the Sakirin Mosque back in 2009? Um, you were the first ever woman to design a mosque, which is an amazing achievement. Um, what were some of the things you thought about, and particularly how did you seek to balance modernity and um, heritage? Thank you very much. Um, when I was commissioned Shakirim Mosque, of course, first I was terribly afraid <laughs> in the beginning because I hadn't designed a mosque before. But then I thought I must bring in all the incredible craftsmanship and artistic works because I work with artists in crafts over 35 years. So I thought I must bring the artists' works into the mosque and open the mosque space up and uh, use the nature as the main wall and then create layers and layers of uh, certain uh, different artistic values which I had done actually uh, in the Shakirin Mosque. Uh, I used metal, uh, as, but I always related it with tradition. That's what I do actually. I try to go in between times. I don't like being static, neither in contemporary nor in any traditional period. If it is left to me, always, of course, we have to stick to the brief of uh, the people, but uh, here, of course, it was the public, and to connect with the public, I thought I have to bring in the traditional arts into contemporary design. So uh, this is what we did, and so it's quite modern in its sense, but it's also appreciated by uh, the whole of Muslims all around Turkey and whoever visits uh, the mosque. I, I think that is what we have done. An incredible achievement. Um, and we hear some more about that later. Um, Mohammed, to introduce you um, to those of us in the room. So you started collecting art, I understand, sort of initially just as a hobby. Um, you said, I think, on the phone to me that it was just to furnish your home at first, and then suddenly there wasn't any room to furnish your home anymore. Um, tell me a little bit about how that evolved and the sense of responsibility that you feel and you've acted upon to share what you've learned about Iranian art through collecting with the wider society. Well, thank you for, uh, for having us together on the panel. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I've come from a family that were very involved in the arts. Uh, my grandfather was a prolific Islamic art collector. And 
you know, as an Iranian who left Iran during the revolution, you know, there was no real link with that country other than our families. And it happened to be that, you know, my mid-twenties, I got sent to Dubai to, to run a bank there. And my remit was this whole region, including Iran. And I went on a visit after not having been back to the country for almost 24 years. And immediately, you sense that you come from that country. And I was there for two weeks, and I ended up buying my first artworks, very small works. Um, but it became clear to me that I really loved everything about Iran, and the focus for me was doing it through the art. And as I collected, I said, I just want enough art to populate my house so I can enjoy and feel like I'm in Iran, but not being in Iran. But of course, when you start buying art and you have the ability to buy more, it never really stops. And then I thought it was criminal to have this art go straight to storage. And I thought, well, I've got to have a purpose for this art. And then I thought, I'm very connected in many places in the world. Maybe I can be an ambassador for these Iranian artists. And then I started promoting Iranian artists, you know, publishing books, sponsoring small shows to bigger shows, and then collecting, you know, became deeper, more prolific. And then it became archival, where I started buying works that I didn't necessarily love, but I said they were important fixtures in Iranian art history. So the idea was to simply get these works in the most broad audience. And luckily for me, in the Middle East, there were already many dealers, collectors that were collecting Iranian art. So I didn't need to do too much in the region because Iranian art is well known there. But in an international audience, you know, let's be honest, people don't know very much about the Middle East in general, other than just sort of superficial, sort of unfortunately largely negative stereotypes. So I thought this is an opportunity also to reframe this part of the world using Iran, my home country, as a, as a way to do so. Mm. And so, you know, over the years, it morphed into not just a personal collection, but a public collection. And, and really now I just do it because I almost feel like if I don't do it, there are very few people that will hold up the Iranian flag because, unfortunately, we don't have that same sense of, uh, let's say, cultural investment as even Turkey has. I mean, Turkey has funds that help promote, you know, their own culture. Iran, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not a very supportive regime when it comes to uh, emphasizing their historic background. Mm. So it really is important that private individuals step up and fill that void. Yeah. And so I do it, and now I, I feel like I can't get off the roller coaster. <laughs> so. Not a bad roller coaster to be on. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your strategy. I mean, once it took on this bigger purpose than just being things that you liked personally, what, um, what kind of things did you think about when you're choosing a strategy? So, for example, do you see the collection as a whole and want to tell a story with it? Um, or are you still drawn to pieces that you like and you fill in the gaps as you go along? So I think the number one criteria when you buy any artwork is, you know, do you love this work? Does it say something to you? But as I said, because I was trying to be more exhaustive and more complete in the, let's say, the nature of, and the broadness of the collection. I bought works that didn't necessarily resonate with me, but I knew to be historically important mm. and relevant if you wanted to tell the story. And the story really is, what is Iranian art since 1950 until today? So I've been trying to fill every segment. And of course, it's impossible. I mean, there's so many artists, uh, so many uh, things you can procure. But what I did was I said, OK, let me identify 150 artists. 
and then go deep into about 15, 20 of them. So 15 or 20 of them, I think, are some of the most important, and I've bought works from every stage of their career. Then, at the same time, I'm having constant dialogue with curators in the West, who are all, what's Iran? What's going on there? What can we do together? And then I'm making it easy for them. I'm like, here's the collection. Take any work you want for a show, group show, you know, uh, Iranian-only show, whatever show you want. And then, by the way, I know you're always looking for funding. I will help you fund. I will, I will mm. step up and be generous so that you don't have that issue. Yeah. So I make it impossible for them to say no. Uh, and, <laughs> and the work, I'm not saying this, bias is an Iranian, but Iranian art is really spectacular. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is really as a result of the fact that this is a country that has, you know, a verifiable history that goes back at least 4,000 years, and in some cases even longer with some of the recent excavations that have gone on. And this sense of cultural identity really has permeated through the generations. So I always say it doesn't matter if Iran loses a border here, it gets cut up, Iran is an idea, yeah. and this idea permeates beautifully through the art world. And so, the more I get into it, the more I enjoy it. In fact, recently, I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I collect episodically, because obviously in the first few years it was very, very aggressive buying to sort of build a certain nucleus. And then, of course, you're buying at the edges, you're trying to fill certain portfolios. There was a sale um, last week in Bonhams a very important Armenian-Iranian artist. And again, just the story of that man is, is an incredible story because he was not just an artist, but he was a philanthropist. And he actually influenced the works of a great Italian artist, Buri. Mm. And Buri had a wonderful retrospective uh, just before COVID in, in the Venice Biennale. Uh, and it was amazing because these works were held by the family and they came up as one. The family had a situation where they had to dispose of all the works. So I, stepped in and bought half the sale so that the works would stay together. Yeah. And now I already have an idea to bring it for a museum show in its entirety. So, you know, this is a privilege to have that ability to do so and to keep this art alive and relevant. And it is working because I will tell you that when I started collecting in 2004, maybe half a dozen Iranian artists were represented by international dealers. Today I'm proud to say that that number is close to 100. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that's largely as a result of these efforts to promote Iranian art and to bring it to an international audience. Because without the international audience, we're never going to get true global buy-in. And that's the way the world works today, and certainly that's the way the art world works. Absolutely, and that's where affairs like this play a role, actually. Um, Corey, I wonder if you want to respond to some of those ideas, because obviously, like Mohammed, you're in a position where you're not always buying just what you love. You're buying on behalf of other people, and you're mm -hmm. buying because you have a wider responsibility to champion a certain cause or give certain artists a platform. What, what, how do you weigh up some of those factors? No, absolutely. I, I appreciate the question. I think as you were speaking, that initial kind of impetus to buy what you love is something that I'm always negotiating because for me, it isn't just my personal experience or myself kind of sharing that space with the work. It's a really wide and varied audience who come from many different backgrounds. So curatorially, my work is to understand what is it that someone can love whose background, personal experience is so different than my own. And I think that's actually the value of art is it's that tool that can connect us, that can allow me to understand what someone else loves and why they love it without me under, having that you know, individual experience. So I think there's, a, there's always that back and forth of what we're drawn to, but also art is a tool to help us understand what 
we're not drawn to and why and what is it that pushes us away and, and create that conversation which I think globally is so important for us to understand what shapes us as individuals and where we, we find shared space. Um, you also talk though about the importance of supporting an artist's career, you know, not just through acquisition but through being an ambassador for their practice and I think about that a lot given the mandate of our collection as Canadian Canadian as a word, like so many nationalities, I think gets redefined, um, is open to different contexts, but making sure that there's opportunities to showcase and acquire work in depth is also, I think, a really important thing. So many artists might get acquired early on in their careers, they have a moment, but being an artist is a, a choice of a, of a lifetime and support needs to be consistent. And, and beyond just the acquisition of works, but speaking about it, introducing artists to institutional spaces, other curators, to other artists, uh, to create that network. And through the RBC Foundation, we also sponsor exhibitions, residency programs, mentorship opportunities um, in public institutions and you know, museums. I think we need to do more to celebrate what museums do for artists because, and, and for society, because those are the spaces that allow us to connect as a public. Um, so it's wonderful to hear the kind of depth of how you're supporting the artists that you bring in and live with and to share your personal love for their work in, in that broad way is exciting. Well, we try to follow your footsteps, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're doing such a great thing for these Canadian artists and, and it's really people like you that give these artists a trajectory in the future. As you said, one thing is buying, but another thing is buying and then, you know, really promoting that work through the right channels. It's mm. important that all the people in that ecosystem are aware, from collector to curator to museum director that might be even more business-sided, you know, it, it, you need buy-in across the whole ecosystem. It's very important. Yeah, yeah. it is an ecosystem. So you play a, you play a very important role. And Zainab, I, I wanted to ask you because you, you have an even extra challenge here and that when you're looking at your choice of art, you're also thinking about it, of course, as part of a wider scheme. Um, and I understand you've made some very bold choices with your art. I mean, everything from traditional Ottoman era religious art to some really contemporary pieces. Um, I'm interested in, for you, the relationship between art and interior design and, for example, which comes first. Do you sometimes see a piece that you just love and build a scheme around it? Or will you create your scheme and then pick the perfect piece that's the finishing touch? Or could it be either? Actually, what you have said, uh, loving a piece and creating around it is the ideal. But because usually we are working for a client or clients, so then you're not free, actually. The most free times were when I uh, designed restaurants and uh, some of them belonged to uh, my husband at the time. And there I used to promote Turkish artists. I used to play around and really build around them the whole scheme for years. And it was when actually Turkish art wasn't that popular. I brought in many artists into, many, I had also designed places in London, for example, where I brought Turkish artists in. Uh, but mostly, I think I have used them, uh, the artists in crafts, uh, which is, I haven't only designed the Shakir in mosque, I have also designed another 16 mosques, uh, unfortunately not in Iran, Iran has very beautiful mosques, <laughs> uh, but uh, in Bahrain, Qatar, 
even Saudi Arabia, uh, and even in Cologne in Germany, uh, and also in Moscow. And in all these works, I have used the mihrab. Uh, I didn't use anything like the usual way. So it was like conceptual art. So I tried to create everything as a thought so that it could break the barriers because what was a mosque and what it had to be was such a block in our minds. Mm -hmm. And when I started working on it, I realized that actually uh, Prophet Muhammad went on a stone and spoke to the public. It was as simple as that. And I was asked by the theologians uh, not to uh, offend uh, the worshippers. That was the only brief and show the way to Mecca. That's it. So, but of course, the culture in many places stands in the way uh, of uh, all sorts of understanding. So this I learned in time to respect the culture of the area and also the people of the area. And I tried to design around it. But art always is in the mosques, in Qatar, in everywhere, we have brought in art, uh, which was quite unusual in thinking, because uh, it looked like mosques weren't about art, whereas in those days, mosques were all about art. But when we look at it, we look at it right now as crafts of the time. Hmm. And you said you talked you talk to me a bit about the sort of spiritual dimension of art. And as you say, you know, people may not think that contemporary art, for example, belongs in a mosque. But as you say, there's, yes. there's art in the form of crafts, there's art in the form of architecture. It's there all the time. And um, what, why do you see um, art in whatever form as, as having a spiritual aspect to it? Uh, actually, uh, when I was designing Shakir in mosque, uh, I think the minds uh, in uh, Turkey was even more blocked mm. than unusually than anywhere else because some of the mosques uh, in other countries were designed by foreigners, so it had other dimensions. But uh, in Turkey, we had old, very beautiful mosques, Sinan's time and uh, 16th century, 17th century, incredible mosques. But the last 100 years, it was all copies of Western ideas, just a bit different from uh, what in those days was experienced. So it, nothing was new, actually. And this disturbed me. It looked like we haven't ever lived in this period. I, w I used to say, if you know, suddenly an earthquake or something would happen and people would come, and it's like this period, there was nobody living in this country. It's either old or foreign, you know? And this was a reaction. And here in Shakirin, weirdly enough, uh, my client was a patron of the arts, so uh, he asked me to go ahead with the artistic values and the spirituality was the main thing, I thought. And there I brought in into the mihrab and so on and uh, textures of uh, the old times of artistic works uh, like calligraphy mm. but with Ottoman petals underneath ac acrylic. And uh, I worked with the head of the modern school, and I worked with the head of the traditional school, but separately. Because if I would have brought them together yeah. in the beginning, <laughs> they would have objected each other because they weren't used to it. It was two walks, different walks of life. So after a while, 
they got used to each other and uh, many people worked with each other. So a different kind of scheme came out and we're trying to carry that to depending on where we are working. See some very clever negotiating to push boundaries there. <laughs> Corey, Mahmoud, do you, do you find negotiation and having to sort of push people out of their comfort zone comes into your roles as well, Corey? I it is, isn't it? I yeah. think so. I think you know, being a curator is always being a translator yeah. between an artist's intent and different audiences. And I think helping people find the language to understand what it is they're looking at, but also how to go deeper. And I think I talked about you know, finding discomfort in work. But, but often that's just people not knowing the language of how to express what it is they're looking at. And uh, so a big part of my, of my work is, is always that translation how about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally, you know, I'm daily challenged to like push myself out of what I normally would do. I, would, I mean, it's almost embarrassing sometimes I buy works, the same work from the same artist thinking, this looks familiar, and, and I bought it again, uh, or a similar edition. Mm. So it's important to test yourself yeah, and, sure. and not always go down the, the comfortable path. I think it's also art is kind of best and most exciting when it's not the expected experience when you mm. walk into a space. Yeah. I mean, I work in a, a corporate setting. Mm. Uh, when you walk into a boardroom and you have an expectation of what uh, an atmosphere is going to look like and that can be disrupted, it also means the conversations don't have to be exactly the what you expect either. And it opens the space up for something, I think, a little more open and creative. And that's Definitely. the value of sharing space with art is it can totally uh, shift everything around you and it affects the conversations. Yeah, absolutely does. And I wanted to take us on um, towards the end of this conversation now to, to look at some other kind of creative spaces. We've talked about, about those material spaces in our homes, our restaurants, our hotels, um, even our religious buildings our offices, um, but we've also touched on the idea of art having a spiritual dimension, a non-material dimension, a space that maybe exists in the mind or the heart. Um, and I also wanted to talk a little bit about virtual spaces because the pandemic, for all the hell it put us through, did have one positive aspect in the cultural world, which is that it really pushed some institutions to um, think about the way they hosted their um, collections virtually um, and they may not always have been may not have been the same experience as going into a gallery but it, it certainly was better than nothing um, and Mohammed I wanted to come to you because you've been doing some really interesting work in terms of thinking about how your collection might take on a life beyond its physical um, would you like to introduce yeah that's very of kind that? of you thank you so you know as, as we were saying I felt the last few years we presented a unique opportunity to bring art into your living room and of course the pandemic sort of accelerated these online experiences because we were all forcibly locked down and so a few months into it I made the decision with our director to basically create a virtual space and when I say virtual I don't mean some video game sort of metaverse like a la Facebook or some sort of how can I say, almost fake real setting. I said, what can you do to reframe how art is experienced? And so I said, let me approach this in a way that no one's approached it. So I hired an architectural firm that consists of ex-Herzog de Muron and Rem Koolhaas architects. 
I brought together a proper production house between LA and New York called Lily Studios. I brought in an ex-MoMA curator who also happened to be of Iranian descent to help curate some ideas. And then I said, let's not try to recreate like the Louvre online, because it's never going to be as good as the Louvre in real. So let's explore the possibilities. So we created a, a museum which will be open to the public in the second half of this year called the Triple I, standing for Interactive, Immersive, Intelligent. So when you go into this museum, you'll be able to do things that you can only do in the virtual world. So you'll be looking at works and the works will be reacting to you based on how you're looking at the work. You'll be able to take a sculpture you like and pick it up with your hands and put it in your living room. And I know this sounds crazy and you don't have to wear an Oculus. This will all be able to be done on a 3G phone. That was a single rule. This has to be accessible to everybody. It has to be free. And it has to reframe the works in a way where the architecture, the art, and the curatorial experience all work together. If you think about the historical context of a museum, they build a beautiful building and then they populate it with art and you figure out the space based on you know, <coughs> the, the, the plumbing, the physical realities of a hard structure. You can't have a piece floating in the air which would defy gravity because you can do that in the virtual universe. So this is going to be something very unique at least at the beginning, and I'm sure people will emulate it, but I thought this is going to be one way for you to experience art. And I think, second of all, it's complementary to the world of physical art, because let's say we had a show that just ended in Nature Society in New York. Many people wanted to go, but because of travel restrictions, because of the inability to travel, many Iranians can't even get to the US because they can't get a visa. How could you bring the show to them in a way where they can enjoy it from their living room? So this democratizes art in a way that you know, technology would not have been able to do so 10 years ago. And so I'm very excited about it. It's been a major initiative. It takes up a lot of my time, way more than I thought. Yeah. Uh, it, it was meant to be a six-month project. It's been two years. Like, it's going to be something incredible. And I hope to be able to formally launch it by freeze. And so you can all see it. And it will be also a rich database where all the artists in the collection will be you know, fully, uh, full bi bibliography, their dealers, anything you want to know about them, it will be available. So it will be an archive for people that have an interest in the field. And the idea is to start with my collection and then invite other collectors to exhibit their works and then eventually do shows that cross boundaries that, that you know, maybe do something that talks about the duality between Iranian and Canadian artists. Why example. not? <laughs> there you go. You've got a partnership right here. Yeah. Um, Zainab, Corey, do you see potential in the virtual sphere? I mean, Zainab, I'd love to be able to take a virtual journey into one of your beautiful mosques right now. <laughs> well, actually, I'm fascinated by the virtual mm. journeys because we, anyhow, we play on 3Ds and so on, but this is something completely different because uh, it is very interesting, I think, for the future. Uh, fascinating. I believe that many things will uh, be communized in a way, mm -hmm. in this way, and everybody will be able to reach and feel part of uh, a world uh, in this way. Uh, so I, I'm really excited. I don't know enough of the boundary limits, you know, which will surely rise yeah. uh, in the, the time coming. But it's fascinating what you said. I think you would really, you would particularly enjoy it because, you know, whilst also being an architect, an interior specialist, 
And it sounds I'm also not like... I'm an architect. Yeah, interiors. But, but, I have but, an architectural... But I'm saying, but you have an architectural sort of flavor, practice, yeah. whatever you want to call it, but you have the yeah. ability and you have this secret curatorial side to you apparently as well, which is great to hear. You would really enjoy this because it's something that just... When you talk about your comfort zone, I'm so used to look at things on a wall and then certain... But to have works suspended in animation, to be able to sit on a carpet and then elevate and fly with a carpet through the museum and look at the work from an angle. I mean, it's, it's, it's really wild stuff. Really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even explain it to you without you seeing the visual renderings and then you'll see what I mean. Probably creating your space with also arts that uh, you will never be able to own. Absolutely. I mean, creating yeah. a virtual and even, even, space. Even distort the artwork. Like, for example, you know, we have a painting that we love, but actually in this in this virtual setting, instead of it being two meters by two meters, it's going to be 20 meters by 20 meters. So the integrity of the work will still yeah. be correct proportionally, but it will occupy a wall that you could not possibly occupy in any physical structure because there's no 20 meter wall in a museum. So sure. it's, yeah. it's, it's really, I mean, I encourage people to explore the virtual space because 100%, if you think about the generation coming up, the Gen Zers, they are in their own world. They're like part in reality, part, part in their own <laughs> virtual world. This will draw in new audiences and it will keep art fresh for people because think about it, art at the Super League game, is, it's just out of anyone's real touch. I mean, it's another world. Yeah. But this, this is accessible to anybody. And also, I think you're going from interiors to exterior, Both. which teaches a lot of probably uh, architects in a way uh, to look, uh, not to create too much a uh, sculpture, which doesn't enhance art at the end of bravo. the day. Bravo, bravo. So that's exactly the point. You're marrying, like you have to now think about the interior space in the context of the outside space. Yeah. And then by the way, here's the beauty. The museum doesn't have to hold from a, let's say, physical perspective because you're not bounded by like beams, columns, you know, yeah. uh, you can have a structure that would be simply impossible. Like our structure, one structure is, is a semi-sphere cut in half, suspended, and rotates according to like, oh my God. you know, and for example, you can decide, you know, I like this artwork, but I think it would look better at night. And you press one button hmm. and the light comes down. You know, really, I mean, it will make us imagine. It'll make you imagine in a way where yeah. you can never replicate it, and that's I the point. That'll also challenge artists as well. Like it'll be interesting to see how artists. What's the ideal environment for their for their mm. work to sit in? Is it a, in a sunrise on a beach? Like it could be anything to expand the artist's intensive audience beyond a studio practice is really. So, so to your point, well. we we have we have an artist studio section mm. where the artists are invited to help curate their own studio and set the works in the best possible way that they could imagine that would not be possible in a conventional museum show. Yeah, and, and, and I think you mentioned, you know, one of the things with technology that comes out of this is, is access. And I think we, we can't not think about technology in relation to access and bringing art to new audiences. Um, but I think what's come out of the pandemic, at least for me, and as I think about how technology was was a tool uh, that I certainly engaged with when we were looking at installations, but also as a tool for 
for conversations. And I think you know, technology is shared experience. So much of, of, of what I've seen that's come out has been technology that's about you know, individual access, an individual looking at space in a new way, having access to explore a collection. But what are those tools of also communal looking and conversation? Um, I know that was one of the things that came out of the last two years was you know, we weren't able to share space with something physically, which is something that I think I hold really precious. But there was so much need for connection and conversation that the amount of, of dialogue that could come out of just looking at an image, um, that was something that really surprised me. It was just how, how much we could have a conversation uh, about a work, you know, even in something which feels like so old school as a Zoom chat. <laughs> you know, it's not ideal, but I, I think it was really exciting for me to realize um, just just how deep you can go into the, the dialogue and content uh, in those spaces as well. So I'm, I'm getting really curious to see all of the spaces that can hold those dialogues. I, I think so. you'll enjoy it when it comes out. Yeah. It'll definitely provoke a conversation. <laughs> This is the most important thing, as you say, starting conversations. Um, and on that note, I'm conscious that we want to leave a little bit of time for questions with our audience. But just before we do that, to wrap up, um, we started with the idea of a creative space. And I wanted to ask each of you, is there a creative space, um, whether at home or abroad, or indeed in the metaverse, that you cherish the most? Um, Mohammed, do you want to start us off? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, there's so many great spaces in the world. It's hard to, uh, I mean, for me, as much as I love the metaverse or virtual world, nothing substitutes the physicality of a real space. Mm -hmm. um, I would tell you that I'm a little bit boring and old school. I think that the three sort of pillars of Met, Louvre, and BM, uh, I'm happy to spend days there. Yeah. And I never get tired, even seeing the same works over and over again. It's something incredible. But there's a whole other tier of other museums, but these three, particularly given their variety and the depth of their collections, it's incredible. Thank you. Zaina? Actually, it's always very difficult for me to say one thing. Yeah. You know, my mind inside, <laughs> I'm all the time thinking of different things. The Bosphorus for me is an ever-changing yeah creative space mm. with, you know, the nature and the moving items. The, the museums, surely, always, and galleries, and of course, but I can't, I can never pick one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't choose a favorite child. <laughs> Corey, do you have a, a cherished creative space that inspires you? It is a hard question. I feel yes. like I always try and I feel the most creative when it's like total quiet mm. and silent and I'm just in my own head maybe. Yeah. Um, but in terms of space that I hold maybe more precious and realize how much en creative energy it gives me is um, actually gallery openings and listening to conversations when people are trying to understand something for the first time. I, I feel like it's, it has nothing to do with me. It really is just like overhearing <laughs> other people's words and knowing that they don't know that I'm listening, but I feel like that's, uh, yeah, there's something really energizing and makes me believe in art in the best way when you can yes. start to listen to, to someone seeing something new. 
That's such a lovely note, the idea of art um, getting people talking. Um, and I'd love to hear whether there's anybody here before we wrap up and thank our brilliant panelists, if there are any questions from the audience. Nothing tonight, you're all very quiet. Corey's going to have to go and eavesdrop on you all afterwards instead. <laughs> no problem. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Mohammed, Zainab, Corey, thank you for being such great conversationalists. Um, it's been a pleasure. And welcome to Masterpiece. And have a great, great rest of your evening and a great visit to the fair. Thank you so much. Thanks.